Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we seek to clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo-Christian thought. I am Brendan Scoggin, and I am here once again with... Skyler. Skyler. It's a Skyler sort of a day. <laughs> all right, let's see here. The people, the people are, you know, I just, obviously they're all salivating to know random things about us, so let me, <laughs> let me pull up a question here. And ask you probably the most important thing we'll talk about today. I hope not, anyways. But <laughs> what is the best part of waking up? Oh you know the, the best part of waking up <laughs> is old juice in your cup. That yeah. is that is the, verifiably yeah. incorrect and yeah. impossible. <laughs> And it's not because I'm anti-coffee. It's because I am very pro-coffee. Yes. In which case, having Folgers in your cup is actually a tragic way to wake up. And For those you know, who don't know, you are a coffee expert. I, I'm a, well, yeah. Yeah, probably compared to the majority of the world, that would be true. I, uh, I enjoy roasting my own coffee and brewing it in multiple ways. And, uh, yeah, so... It's you delicious. know, aside aside from the, I mean, maybe we should say like it needs to be a non spiritual answer because you know, obviously, yes. I love getting up, yeah, praying, being Lord's in the Word. Prayer. But if it was a non spiritual answer, I'll answer first. It is coffee. Like that's it. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think my grandpa Hamilton set the pattern. You yeah, know, I, he was more reliable than my clock. You know, yeah. I, every morning, coffee, newspaper. Out and of course, this is in the south, you know. Oh yeah, beautiful birds singing, reading the newspaper, doing his crossword puzzle. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's. So he it. was the best part of waking up. <laughs> that pattern, <laughs> that pattern. With me, it might yeah. not be. No, please, so he, it won't I, be here's a here's a story for you. Is is uh, we we had some some uh, friends over and you know LDS background and everything, and we were. Uh, just having post dinner conversation and we have, you know, one year old boy and he's starting to say words and it sounded like he was saying a word that he says all the time. And, uh, and so we were explaining how he says this word all the time. And that word is something to the effect of coffee, coffee, (laughs) coffee, you know, and he really does like, he knows the word coffee. And so we were trying to show them how cute it is. And so we were surrounding, you know, his high chair and we were just like, Arlo, say coffee. Arlo, say coffee. Say coffee. Say and then and then we just I'd step back and I realized how crazy we must have looked. And I was like, Yeah, I mean, this is how evangelicals raise their children. We just we just sit here and try to get them to like we really get it in their heads young. Coffee, coffee, you know, like say it, kid. Yes. <laughs> And, uh, it's a great first impression yeah. for the neighbors yeah, here in Utah awesome? County. We're just like, wait, <laughs> this this probably doesn't look great, but uh, no, they it it didn't seem to bother them. They thought it was pretty funny. But well, uh, this morning while I was drinking my coffee, I was reading Talmudge's Jesus the Christ. So I don't know if that helps win points back. Yeah, you know, yeah, for you us to our go. LDS listeners, probably not. That's probably worse. <laughs> you just made it worse. Uh. Oh, what's, so yeah, I mean, I, for me, it's definitely coffee. I just, I'm with you. If you don't know, coffee is actually a beautiful, 
beautiful creation of the Lord that is a gift to us. It's, you know, most people, all they know is like the Folgers and Folgers is seriously like muddy water. Like you might as well just go outside with some hot water and throw some dirt in it (laughs) and drink that because that's what Folgers is. It's what you would define as commodity grade, which, you know, like I remember one of my professors telling a random story to us, we were talking about you know, late night Taco Bell runs as college students. And he told a story about being in Taco Bell once and seeing a box. And I'm, you know, if you like Taco Bell, I do too. So I don't know that this is true. It might not be true, but he said he saw a box on the ground that said grade D meat. (laughs) And then someone had written on it still edible (laughs) and uh, sitting on the ground, you know, there in Taco Bell. Well, that's kind of what Folgers is like. Like, you might as well just think the lowest grade of meat, put the label on it, barely still edible, and that's what Folgers is. There's so much better stuff out there, you know. I mean, you would rate on a scale of 1 to 10, and I'm not kidding, they actually, or not 1 to 10, 1 to 100, they rate coffee. And Folgers would be commodity grade, which means it would score at like 50 to 60 points, you know. So it's the lowest quality stuff that you can get on the market. (laughs) And specialty grade coffee will hit at usually 85 to 95 points. If you ever have anything that's above 95, that's near impossible. But rarely they'll score coffees above 95. And when you drink good coffee, it's like, and it's made right, and it's roasted right, and everything... You know, some people laugh when they see the labels on coffee bags that are specialty coffee because it'll say it tastes like, you know, grape jelly and, you know, all these different flavor notes. And people think, are they adding flavor to that? No, no, no. Like good coffee actually just has very distinct and different flavors. And if you make it right, it has a sweetness, like a natural sweetness to it. And you just get to enjoy all these chocolate notes, cherry notes, you know, I mean, you name it, you can find those flavors in coffee. Um (laughs) Except dirt flavored, unless yeah. <laughs> you're drinking Folgers. Well, if if you had to pick, you have to pick one. Would it be Folgers or like that chocolate syrup with coffee flavor that you could buy at, you know, some of the more mainstream places? Mm. Peppermint syrup with like, you know, a little coffee. You're talking added. about Starbucks right now. Yeah. If you had to pick one. Yeah. Like black coffee Folgers or like 50% peppermint <laughs> syrup. you know, not much better quality than Folger Starbucks coffee. That's the question. I would definitely choose the stuff with some form of, of, uh, you know, cream or sugar to cut the bitterness because the bitterness of bad black coffee is unpalatable to me. It's unpalatable. So... (laughs) I would go Folgers. Yeah. Is this a coffee pot? I feel like I, uh, yeah, what, we could just we, do this. Let's just do this. Uh, we got, we got like 45 minutes. Let's go. Let's just, let's talk about coffee. <laughs> you know, like psych, you know, everybody Oof. thought that this was actually a, a creedal and, yeah. you know, Mormonism <laughs> podcast. We just wanted the first four episodes <laughs> yeah. to make you think that. Yeah. We wanted to announce our new business now we're venture. we start talking about coffee. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I'm shutting up now. What's yours? Best part of waking up? Uh, yes, that, you know, with a good book. There you go. And if it's, you know, in the spring through the fall, with the window open, hearing the birds. Mm-hmm. You like the birdies. Yes, and the books. Yes. All right, well, good stuff. Now you know something else about us. Yes. 
Not that you wanted to, but you're listening. So they can pretend to like jokes on you. (laughs) (laughs) You can turn it off whenever you want. Um, All right, let's get into the content. So uh, today we're going to be looking at the um, Come Follow Me, which is, of course, once again, the curriculum for the LDS uh, church that is used all over the world. We're going to be looking at January 23rd to 29 of 2023, which is a study of Matthew 3, Mark 1, Luke 3. You know, of course, we loosely use the word study because we're not going to be walking through those passages in detail. It's more so drawing out some of the points that are being made in their curriculum and then interacting with some of those points. Um, and of course, you know, we're, we're going to go a little bit deeper on some of the things than what we even see represented in the curriculum because a lot of what we want to talk about is the stuff that is a little more uh, deeper, a little deeper than what you see typically in this stuff. So anyways, all that to say, just a quick rundown of what we're seeing in this one. The title is Prepare Ye the Way of the Lord. And in the teacher manual Sunday school curriculum, you've got several subheadings. The first is uh, covering Matthew 3, 1 to 12 and Luke 3, 2 to 18. And the subtitle there is Disciples Prepare Themselves and Others to Receive Jesus Christ. And so it's encouraging learners to think about how you prepare for an important guest and to think about how John the Baptist prepared people to receive Jesus and then think about how you are preparing other people to receive Jesus. And then it goes to the next subsection, which is Luke 3, 2 to 14, And the subtitle there is we need to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. And so it's, you know, talking about Luke 3 and John the Baptist talking about his ministry being one of repentance and asking what what are fruits worthy of repentance. And then it encourages the class. It says this could be a good time to talk about what it means to truly repent. And so we'll come back around on that as well here in just a little bit on maybe some of the distinctions between how evangelical or credo Christians understand repentance and the LDS church teaches repentance. Matthew 3, 13 to 17 is the next uh, subsection, and the subtitle there is We Follow Jesus Christ by Being Baptized and Receiving the Holy Spirit. So you see the emphasis on this following of Jesus and following Jesus to be baptized and to receive the Holy Spirit, and uh, just gives a few different points on that. And then there's lastly, the additional resources, which cover our baptismal covenants. That's the subheading. And we've got a quote from uh, David Bedner, and the uh, quote is, the baptismal covenant includes three fundamental commitments. One, to be willing to take upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. Two, to always remember him. And three, to keep his commandments. The promised blessing for honoring this covenant is that we may always have his spirit to be with us. Uh, So you see there that, you know, participating in this act gives you this promised blessing of knowing that you'll have the Holy Spirit with you. So there's things you got to do to continue to hold on to the spirit being with you, basically. Um, It says, thus, baptism is the essential preparation to receive the authorized opportunity for the constant companionship of the third member of the Godhead. Um, That's pretty straightforward. You know, you get baptized, and that's part of the act to ensure that you're going to have the constant presence of the Holy Holy Spirit. Uh, We're not even going to talk about some of the distinctions there. At least we hadn't 
plan to, but boy, there's a lot that we could cover even just in that. Definitely. Um, our understanding of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is that it's an act of God sending his spirit into our hearts um, by which we cry, Abba, Father. And once we have been adopted, you know, we are, we are according to Paul in Ephesians 1, we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And that word sealing implies it cannot be broken. You know, this is a work of God. The Spirit cannot be taken away from us. Um, and so there's not things we have to do to maintain assurance that the Spirit will be with us. Instead, as the Spirit is with us, we will walk and do works of righteousness by His power at work in us. So it's not like us in our own strength trying to make sure that the Holy Spirit stays with us. It's actually this miraculous transformation that happens when we hear the gospel, believe the gospel, we believe the truth, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and then we begin to walk in the truth. Um, yeah, and yeah. it almost seems at times, and we'll get more into this, that repentance is something you do to get become worthy enough to achieve these things or yeah. to receive these things. Yep. Um, it's not, repentance isn't a gift. You know? Yeah. Like we see repentance as a gift of God. Yep. Um, you know, the spirit convicts, which is often uncomfortable, by the way. We'll get into some of the feeling stuff that's in the seminary manual. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, repentance itself is a gift. It's not something we do of ourselves or just try hard enough yeah. to make ourselves worthy of God's presence through, yep. you know, God the Holy Spirit. That's good. Um, the individual and family manual has a, a pretty similar flow. Um, let me just... The first line there, let me just read the first line in the individual and family manual. Jesus Christ and his gospel can change you. Um, so, you know, we've already talked about some of the distinctions and what that means. Um, the gospel is not just this thing that can and maybe won't change you based on how you perform according to it. The gospel is a declaration of what Jesus has done for us. And as we believe that, the the, the union we have with Christ is what changes us through the Spirit. Okay. Uh, the subtitles in the individual and family manual, I'll read through. I'm not going to say what texts they correspond to, but it'll just give you the gist of what's being talked about. Repentance is a mighty change of mind and heart. Um, on the surface, we'd agree with that. But again, let's be clear on what we mean by that. And then it ex- has a section explaining who are the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then there's a section saying Jesus Christ was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. And then the explanation under that is when you were baptized, you followed the example of the Savior. So again, you see this example idea being drawn out. Uh, Just a quick distinction that we would make there, because I don't know that we're going to go super deep on this, but uh, both of us would affirm and agree that Jesus Christ being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, the the critical uh, truth to grasp onto in that text is that Jesus had the perfect baptism. You know, his baptism was an obedience that was done in perfection. And so him doing that to fulfill all righteousness is done not so that we can follow his example alone. Primarily it was done because we could have never had a perfect baptism because we are tainted, imperfect sinners. And so the significance of Jesus's baptism is that he is doing this act that is fulfilling the standards and expectations of the Holy God of which we fall short. And so in our baptism, we are expressing that we need to be united to him in his perfection so that effectively his baptism becomes the righteous baptism that we receive in him. So 
we're not even doing our baptism as like this righteous act that adds righteousness to our account before God. Our baptism is really uh, an expression of our faith in Christ who stands in our place in every regard that we need to be counted righteous before God. Right, and this is something I think even Christians can overlook a little bit, is, you know, why does Jesus get baptized? He obviously doesn't need it for himself. And um, though in the LDS sources, um, they definitely want to emphasize um, the righteousness of certain sources for truth. Um, David Ridges, for example, righteous testimony accompanied by the witness of the Holy Ghost cannot come from an unrighteous source. Well, that's interesting because like, literally in these passages, David Ridges has claimed to cover, John the Baptist is emphasizing his unworthiness yeah. relative to yeah. the Savior. I, I can't even tie um, your sandals. Exactly, right? which we know from other sources, right, that even Jewish slaves could not be required to clean feet move shoes, right? Only Gentile slaves could in this period. So he's saying, you know, I'm not even worthy to do that uh, relative to him. And uh, though relatively speaking, we would say John was a righteous, faithful prophet, uh, ultimately speaking, once again, not having uh, comparison being our neighbor, but comparison being the holy God whom we worship, we are not worthy. And that's, that's something to get is that Jesus is acting representative represented uh, words are hard words acting representatively um yeah he's you know as it says in isaiah 53 right he's being numbered with the transgressors he's the second and last adam and in this inaugural moment of the messianic ministry we see the rest of the ministry kind of proleptically shown if you see what water symbolism in the creation could mean also judgment we see even the cross the death of Christ being foreshadowed here. And so, of course, he doesn't need to do it, but he didn't need to die and be reborn either. He didn't need to die and be resurrected. We needed him to die and be resurrected. So it's, you know, in Luke 12, 50, right, he even says, I have a baptism to come. Mm. Once again, making this connection that even in this moment, we see that Christ uh, will undergo judgment uh, for us, Bear iniquities, yeah, our which iniquities. is represented, by the way, in the in the waters, you yeah. know, because the the Jewish mind would have understood the sea and the ocean yep. and things of that to be um, representative of judgment. That's like yeah. the flood, right? Yep. In the Chaos. great flood, there's judgment being poured out through this water, yeah. and so you know, Jesus's baptism and being immersed in the water is representative of him taking judgment that we deserve, mm-hmm. um, which you see that picked up on even in Romans uh, 6 and how Paul talks about baptism corresponding in those ways. So mm-hmm. that's good, yeah. Um, but that's not what you see really in the curriculum. No, uh, what you see, you know, there's actually a chart in the individual and family curriculum for the LDS faith. There's a chart there. And on one side, one column, it says the Savior's baptism and then in the other column, it says my baptism. And so it's it's all again like, and we continue to see this where the focus is pulled off of Christ and his his beauty and his perfection and his uh, work in our place. And it always is kind of turning the scriptures to be me-centered, self-centered. And so there's the Savior's baptism, and it asks who baptized Jesus and what authority did he hold? And then my baptism, 
on the other side of the column, who baptized you and what authority did he hold? Yep. And then the Savior's baptism, where was he baptized? And then my baptism, where were you baptized? And then G- the Savior's baptism, how was he baptized? And then my baptism, how were you baptized? So again, you yes. just have this back and forth of like the whole point of what Jesus is doing is so that you can reflect on yourself and your own life, essentially, rather than seeing Jesus is doing things that that uh, are meant to be worshiped, you know, as, as we see his work in our place, you know, it's not just supposed to be this, this interesting moment for self-reflection, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and Isn't then, it interesting? They are very clear on baptism yeah. in the, not, not in this manual, which I, I think they're almost unable to be clear in the main one, but uh, in the seminary manual, they're very vague on a lot, but yeah. they're very clear that baptism is one having authority Right. Uh, once it's an age of accountability, there's an agent of accountability, and by by someone holding that authority, by immersion, full body immersion. Yeah, that's they're very clear. Oh yeah, on this. And then the main point that's emphasized in Matthew three sixteen to seventeen, Mark one nine to eleven, and Luke three twenty one to twenty two is, and, and this is kind of the big point that's made at the very end of their individual family man, manual, and that's that the members of the Godhead are three separate beings. So they're going to be very clear on in this one, and we covered that. If you didn't listen to our podcast number four, we talked a good bit about LDS teaching on the beings. Um, I don't know if you wanted to make any quick comments just on that section. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. They, they also cite the Holland Talk. In the seminary manual, which is what we covered, which we in covered in more detail last time. I will say this: that this is a great moment to see the difference, um, and this is going to be something that is absolutely distinctive. Obviously, is they look at the baptism and they think it disproves the Trinity. We look at the baptism and we see the Trinity. So, what's going on? It's what's going on is at a presuppositional level. That's right. We distinguish the persons. The question is, is there only one God? And if there's only one God, then the three persons are the one God, right? One, the one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know? So, whereas they see it as three different gods. And yes, contrary to Holland, that is polytheism. Uh, yes. uh, that needs to be said. Yep. Three gods. Yeah. Poly. Yep. There, uh, may I read this quote just really quick? Yes. Just to show that this consistency, this is something that completely consistent with the early Mormon church. What's the quote out of? This is Orson Pratt, and um, in the Journal of Discourses, page, uh, I'm going to be jumping around from page 175 to 176 in the 16th volume, and this is um, just a discourse by Orson Pratt, August 31st, 1873. Um, in which he says this, and he's talking about all the different Christians. The whole of them claim that the Bible contains the last revelation that was ever given from heaven. Hence, if their claim be true, God never said a word to Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, or any other reformer about their ministry, the order of marriage, baptism, or anything else, which, of course, we would say he did through Scripture. Yeah. Yeah. But they're not including that. Uh, Continuing on, if their claim be true, 
that the last revelation God ever gave was to John on the Isle of Patmos. What conclusion must we come to in regard to them, meaning Christendom, uh, Catholics, Protestants, Baptists, everybody? He says, we must conclude that all their administrations are illegal. If I have been baptized by the Presbyterians, Church of England, Roman Catholics, Greek Church, Wesleyans, or any other religious denomination which denies any later revelation than the Bible, my baptism is good for nothing. God has had nothing to do with it, never having spoken to or called the minister who officiated, as Aaron was called, that is by new revelation, jumping ahead a little bit. And he then actually says, what about if they're sincere? And he says, it doesn't matter if they're sincere, mm-hmm. which that, that does strike at the temperament that you often encounter among LDS, yeah. um, where it's like, if you feel good about it, it must be good. Mod- um, modern. Modern like LDS modern culture. Yeah. yeah. Um, says one, you do not mean to say that all our marriages are also illegal as well as our baptisms, meaning that's the Christian response. Yes, I do. So far as God is concerned, but I am telling you that which is my belief, and I presume so far as I am acquainted, is the belief of the Latter-day Saints throughout the world. Um, he says, well, how are you going to make these marriages legal? Here are a man and a woman who were married according to the civil law before they ever heard of your doctrines. that They have come to an understanding of them, and now is there any possible way to make their marriage legitimate in the sight of heaven? Yes. How? By having them remarried by a man who has authority from God to do it. This has been done in almost numberless instances, and it is the same with baptism. Has any person baptized by the Methodist, Church of England, Baptists, or Presbyterians been admitted into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints on his old baptism? Never. Not one among the hundreds of thousands who have joined this church since its rise in 1830 has been admitted on his or her old baptism. Why not? Because we do not believe in their old baptisms. So there you go. There's a showing a little continuity between Orson Pratt and the current manual. There you go. Point. Good stuff. Um, <laughs> define good. Uh, yeah. But anyways, um, yeah, so that's the gist of the curriculum itself. And uh, we're going to kind of turn to make a few observations um, on the curriculum in a deeper way um, in trying to understand LDS thought maybe a little more deeply. And, uh, and basically, just so you know kind of where we're going with the podcast today, um, we're going to talk about the idea of repentance and, you know, hear about what the uh, LDS teaching on that is and compare that a little bit to creedal Christian thought. And then we're going to talk about the concept of baptism and hear a little bit more about what LDS t- people believe the purpose of baptism is. And then, special treat for you here at the end, uh, what what uh, church are you a member of? Orthodox a- Presbyterian Church. Okay, all right. You got a Baptist pastor over here. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, if you don't know, because you're just, you know, ignorant up to this point, Baptists and Presbyterians have some disagreements on the issue of baptism, which is why Baptists are called Baptists, because they broke away from the mainline Reformed uh, views to start uh, really... Uh, new churches that had a different practice when it came to baptism, rooted in a different belief of how the scriptures teach on those things. So at the very end, um, we're just going to kind of present very briefly, you know, this isn't going to be an in-depth overview. We can recommend some resources and put some different uh, even resources in the show notes if you're interested to read a little more deeply on the differences between a uh, Baptist understanding and a Presbyterian understanding of baptism. But we're going to just give a real quick overview 
of uh, how our different uh, churches might view uh, or should view at least the uh, doctrine on baptism. So let me just ask first, Skyler, um, you know, because repentance is one of the primary themes in this, and uh, even in the manual, there's, of course, the section that's encouraging you to talk about what it looks like for you to repent, um, what is true repentance. Uh, what would be a LDS understanding of repentance? Well, in terms of sin, um, right, they reject the doctrine of original sin, which is key. They think um, you're, we're not guilty in Adam, so there's no federal headship of Adam in this. So what are they repenting? They do have sin is violating the rules. Some of them will talk about kind of a moral order. I think some of the, you know, LDS that read more would see sin as anything that hinders progression. You kind of see it all, um, even in this Nelson quote they include, right, where he, he does emphasize that repentance is necessary. Okay. Um, that it blocks us from looking to Jesus, I, I guess. I, you know, they, they almost see sin as the barrier between God that not even God would cross, you know? So it's a little bit different there. Um, and then, of course, they do the, you know, repentance, change of mind, change of knowledge, change of spirit, even breath. Uh, so Nelson says, even the way we breathe will change. There's nothing more liberating, more ennobling, more crucial to our individual progression than is a regular daily focus on repentance. Um, they talk about it as a process and a key to happiness and peace of mind. Um, and when coupled with faith, repentance opens our access to the power of the atonement. So you, you can see just even in the wording, right? So repentance allows us to access <laughs> to the power of Christ. It's not in the power of Christ, right? So, so that's a difference. Um, and then, of course, in terms of functional, what does it look like to the LDS? Unless it's changed, um, which a lot of things have changed. Um, years ago, let's say you violated one of the rules, something like this. It could be a grave moral sin that we would, of course, agree with them on, or it could be um, something that we wouldn't agree with them on, say coffee. Um, you go and you talk to the bishop and then it's a private meeting, right? And there's this process you go through over time that it can, you know, involve changing your mind. It can involve, if you've hurt someone else, restitution. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, obedience. Yeah. And they will even, um, on some, uh, prevent your taking of the sacrament for a while, mm -hmm. which in the culture is a very public way of either rejecting it or you're being forbidden yeah uh to partake the sacrament so yeah i don't know if i'm helping yeah but, no uh, that is good i actually even as you're working through some of it it reminded me of a quote from general conference um by elder ravillo i don't know if that's correct um but yeah this was from october of 2021 he said like soap repentance is a cleaning agent it allows yeah. us the opportunity to get rid of our impurities and our old debris so we are worthy to be with God. 
as no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah. And this was posted on like the official general conference uh, Twitter account, you know, like, hey, this is good teaching here. So, um, yeah, I mean, you see, repentance is seems like this this always necessary effort to make yourself worthy yeah. before God. It's almost a therapeutic technique, don't you think, hmm. in how they view it? I mean, yeah, and to show just this difference, once again, it's almost this um, something you do in order to connect with God. Rather than us, we see the Spirit convicting us, bringing us to repentance, right? Uh, listen to this quote on Gospel Topics Repentance page. It says, Full obedience brings the complete power of the gospel into our lives. Yeah. So that's part of the repentance process as they outline it in their manual. Hmm. Um, so it's it's tough because this is somewhere where you can see these lines where you're like, yeah, on the surface it agrees, but you get down underneath and you start seeing the distinctives come out. Yeah. So... Um, got just a little bit that I want to read here that gives a credo Christian perspective. And this is by John Murray and uh, he's a great, great theologian, the 20th century. And um, this is from his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, which is an excellent, excellent book. But he says, the question has been discussed, which is prior faith or repentance? And this is an important question to ask in the context of what we're discussing here, because if repentance is being presented uh, basically as this process that you have to go through continually to clean yourself off to become worthy to God, what what place does faith have in all of this? You know, um, and this is something that you know is often a conversation that's had between credo Christians and LDS people. Um, is how these thing, two things work together. But listen to what Murray says. He says it is an unnecessary question. Again, the question was, which is prior, faith or repentance? It's an unnecessary question, and the insistence that one is prior to the other is futile. There's no priority. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith, and the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Repentance is admirably defined in the Shorter Catechism, talking about the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Quote, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience, end quote of the catechism. And then Murray goes on. The interdependence of faith and repentance can be readily seen when we remember that faith is faith in Christ for salvation from sin. But if faith is directed to salvation from sin, there must be hatred of sin and the desire to be saved from it. Such hatred of sin involves repentance, which essentially consists of turning from sin unto God. Again, if we remember that repentance is turning from sin unto God, the turning to God implies faith in the mercy of God as revealed in Christ. It is impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Regeneration becomes vocal in our minds and in the exercises of faith and repentance. So you hear there, you know, you can't detach um, these various doctrines that all work together in what we would call, from a credo Christian perspective, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. 
you know, a lot of times LDS people get confused about what even evangelicals mean when we talk about salvation. When we talk about salvation, we include all these different doctrines that are incorporated into the doctrine of salvation. And we would even put those doctrines into a particular logical order and how they work themselves out from what we see in the scriptures. But one of those is uh, faith and repentance, but those are often pitted against one another. You know, like LDS people will say, well, you know, you just believe that justification is faith alone. And because you believe that, obviously you can go be as wicked as you want and live however you want and you don't have to repent. And uh, that's not what I see in the Bible. And that's a common argument that you hear from LDS people. And uh, it's just nothing could be further from a proper understanding of evangelical doctrine. The whole point is saving faith changes you. Like saving faith works together in repentance. As the Holy Spirit indwells the believer, it brings the Christian into a conviction of sin that leads to a belief in Christ as the only hope of salvation. But as we cling to Christ, we are necessarily running away from our sin to cling to him because Christ is pure and holy, right? Um, so anyways, yeah. And just going along with that, it, it often gets into this conversation of, are you saved by grace? Are you saved by works? And of course, an LDS will think, well, we think both, right? You're saved by grace after all you can do. Yeah. And evangelicals should not take the bait there, right? Not that it's a conscious bait. My point is, is we don't think we're saved by faith. Yeah. (laughs) Hear me again. We are not saved by faith. We're saved by Christ through faith. Yeah. We're saved by grace in Christ through faith. Yep. So it's it's not faith versus works. It's Christ and then his, you know, work, God himself, the triune work, right, gives us faith, leading us to repentance. And that repentance will have fruit and also the conversion will have fruit, as you yeah. as you pointed out. Th- this is key uh, as well. You know, this whole section we need to bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, and of course, um, worthiness is a huge thing for LDS people, right? Being worthy, as if yeah, because we could even like um, you. You may even ex- explain for some of the evangelical listeners what temple worthiness is. Yeah, so you know, to to go to the temple, which is the most sacred place for Mormons. That's where they do their sealings for marriages, baptisms for the dead, um, a bunch of things, including even second anointings for the connected elite. Um, This is, you know, it's a big deal to be able to have a temple recommend symbolizing that you are on the covenant path and are righteous. I mean, this is one of the few places in the world where you'll get people to say, yeah, I follow the law, and they're not kidding. Yeah. (laughs) Right? They have no sense of, like, the gap between God and man. And it makes Mm. sense because of their theology. But you see it coming through here. They're going to do a lot with this worthiness thing. Whereas we would say, yes, repentance can't just be words. For them, that worthiness is going to come in. And you even see it in, for example, David Ridge's commentary being promoted by Deseret Book for this year, where he says, relative to... um, this verse, you know, God could turn these rocks into the sins of Abraham. This is his message, quote, you have to earn salvation yourselves. You have to earn salvation yourselves. And what is that? It is through righteous living. This is something that there's a Nelson talk as well I can find and put in the show notes, where he literally gets up and says, I'm going to guide you into being righteous. 
there's, I think it's Spencer Kimball, where literally he, in conference, I think, maybe it may have been a BYU devotional, he cites this psalm that talks about even humans being as the worms, you know, talking about judgment. And he says, this is nonsense, you know. <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is not our view, you know. We have to be righteous. So this, yeah, this is um, even where we would morally agree. Yeah. Um, it's a completely different context mm. for those beliefs. Yeah. That's so fascinating because one of the things that I hear on the street all the time that uh, LDS people will say without even um, thinking twice, you know, is, is they'll say, Oh, we, we believe that you're saved by grace too. You know, we, yeah. we believe that. And, uh, and they'll, they'll say that, but then you hear things like that commentary. It's like, we don't believe that we were saved by, you know, yeah. it, it doesn't say that way, but it says you have to be saved by yeah. what you do. Yes. You know? And so that's where I think LDS, uh, well, even credo Christians, we can sometimes, uh, really struggle to have those conversations with LDS people because we read things like that that are from LDS leaders. And, I mean, again, you said that that commentary is what's being promoted to help people read through the New Testament. This year. And in that commentary there, I mean, that's a direct quote, you yep. know. What what did it say again? I mean, just... Yeah, let me direct quote. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. I can put... It's only a few words, but it's yep. very clear. You have to earn salvation yourselves. Yeah, there's no if ands that's buts not, qualifiers that's footnotes. That's not saved by grace. No, and and that's the thing <laughs> yeah. I think for like the types that'll throw you know the Brad Wilcox yeah. talk at us oh, yeah. you know that's like more Mark Twain than Augustine. Um, that's kind of an insult. I'm kind of mean it, but uh, we'll we'll go through that talk sometime. Yeah. Maybe oh, you know yeah. one of these you know bonus episodes. His, his grace is sufficient. Yes. Yeah. 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 Where you know it's it's not. That, I think grace for them is the opportunity to try right. again. Yeah. It's like, That's right. it's it's like a, a it's video game. Reset. You get to reset the yep. level. Mulligan. You get a mulligan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's very different. Um, you know, that there's um, a Book of Mormon verse, too. Realistically, though, I mean, it, it probably is an accurate, uh, an accurate analogy to say that in LDS thinking, you've got an impossible cliff that you're asked to climb. And every time that you slip and fall, you get lowered to the very bottom again. But at least you didn't go lower than the earth yet. Yeah. You know, like you can you can try to climb again. And yeah. uh, boy, it's exhausting. Uh, it is. And it, it really, it feels like a hamster wheel on the outside to yeah. me, right? Because it's this constant, well, just get better, get better, get better. It's very self-centered. It's mm-hmm. honestly... Um, if you look at the reformers' criticisms of the sacramental system of Rome as it had developed in the Middle Ages, right, yeah. um, which of course is built on errors that we would agree are errors, even relative to baptism, that you know baptism regenerates uh, and reverses the fall, for example, and then you've got to keep yourself in a state of grace. For more, if, if that's bad, try this, um, where. Perfection is possible, therefore it is required, right? Yeah. And so this process is a grace in the sense that you're able to keep trying and keep trying until you are perfect and don't need the system anymore. Mm-hmm. But wow, is that a weight on the shoulder? That's different than, you know, my yoke is easy, you know, yeah. uh, my burden is light, um, yep. right? What do we do in Christ? We rest, you know, he is our Sabbath rest. We'll compare that with Moroni 10. Yea, come unto Christ, and once again, this coming to Christ, are we opposed to that? We'll keep reading and be perfected in him and deny yourselves of all ungodliness 
And if you shall deny yourselves of if ye shall deny yourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all your might, mind, and strength, then it's an if then clause state sentence. Then is his grace sufficient for you. Yeah, there's a million conditionals. Yeah, if you are there. perfect, mm-hmm. then then his grace is sufficient for you. That by his grace you may be perfect in Christ, and if by the grace of God you're perfect in Christ, you can in no wise deny the power of God. Mm-hmm. Once again, it, this is a verse, too, that LDS will often really like. Yeah. And it's like, that is incredible. Yeah. When part of our repentance is crying out how unworthy we are. That's right. I mean, if you look at the parable, right, of yeah. the publican. Yep. The tax collector and the Pharisee, right? Yeah. Why did one go home justified? Yeah. Because he recognized his own unrighteousness and that he was relying wholly upon the grace of God. Yep. That that makes me want to turn our conversation, you know, and, and keep heading in the same direction, but maybe emphasize something a little bit different. But uh, the curriculum really has these... I hate to word, use the word vibes because, but you know, I'm a millennial, so I guess I'm allowed to. But <laughs> it has these vibes, you know, that repentance is kind of this. You can do it, like you can do it, get better. You know, you you can get there, and uh, just you bringing up the the uh, story of the of the publican um, reminds me that you know what we understand as repentance tends to be a little different than this kind of happy perspective, which is just weird because I feel caught, you know, when I read this yeah. LDS stuff, I feel caught in the middle of on, on one side, this voice that's saying, you know, you need to be better. You need to be better. You need to be better. Um, and that just sounds really depressing and hopeless when you realize how far, far you fall short constantly and then on the other side, there's like this, you can do better, you can do better, you can do better, yeah. you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And like as a fallen sinner caught in the middle of that tension, yeah. you feel like you're being ripped in two pieces. You know, it's like I'm being told I must do and I'm being told I can do, but then I'm living in this reality of always falling short of perfection. And perceivably, that would just be a very depressing, sad place to be. Um, and yet you have a lot of LDS teaching that's like, go for whatever makes you feel the best, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you'd even found some stuff in the, the other manuals that, uh, kind of work along those lines, but I would just like to, to sit in that tension a little bit that exists there of like how the LDS church encourages you to discern truth by going after whatever feels good. But then the reality of what it means to live in this constant state of you need to be better, be better, be better, be better, but you really aren't ever measuring up, that just makes you feel like like terrible, you know? Um, but anyways, what, yeah. what were some of those things that, well, that you found there? Okay, yeah, and this, this is a little, this is related, but I feel like we just have to talk about it. So this is in the seminary manual. And so it's related because so much is. of the LDS faith is based on feelings. Yes. And what I want to talk about is this tension that exists with whether or not repentance makes you feel good, yeah. whether, whether or not you feel good in the moment where you realize you need to repent. And then just this general way that the, the, 
teaching tends to be run after what makes you feel good. You Absolutely. Know? And, and of course, for us, and maybe I should have said this a minute ago, right? There's, on one hand, we aren't good enough. And then on the other hand, we don't compromise God's standards. That's why there's someone who did it for us. So he didn't compromise the standards, and he became man for us, right, for, our, for us and for our salvation um, to take us <laughs> where we want to go, um, which is to worship him forever. Well, so this, this week, so the seminary, for, for those that don't know, it's five days a week. It's like a school curriculum. So it's going through the same curriculum this year, but it's sometimes a little more in-depth which isn't hard to do relative to this manual, but it's a little more in-depth. They have more time in their defense. And um, they have a lesson for this week called Acquiring Spiritual Knowledge. And I think it's relevant to what we're doing. So here is two sections, and then I, I want to focus on two angles here. Some questions for evaluating new information. Okay, and that's a bullet point list. What did I feel from the Holy Ghost when I read or heard this information? Once again, this I, I should have said this. It it's it's is confronting people who are on the internet and finding Brigham quotes and finding race in the priesthood and find whatever, right? They're finding all these questions. And this is their framing uh, in a lesson called Acquiring Spiritual Knowledge in the seminary manual from the LDS Church. What did I feel from the Holy Ghost when I read or heard this information? Does this information bring me closer to Jesus Christ and his church? Does this information encourage me to keep God's commandments, which they also include all the stuff they add to it, like coffee? Does it agree with what the scriptures and modern prophets teach? Does it confirm what I have already felt the Holy Ghost tell me is true? Or does it encourage me to doubt gospel truths? Does the information come from a source that the Savior or his church leaders would consider trustworthy? Are we, yes. once again, notice how it's always combining something with something from them. What would my parents or church leaders say about this information? If I feel tempted to keep it from them, what does that tell me about its source? Mm. There's a lot of fear in these questions. Oh, yeah. And um, underneath, there's a section. Um, it's pretty scary. Well, I think this is also relevant to, and perhaps this is, they're, they're thinking this because they're thinking about repentance. And in the uh, curriculum, it says repentance is this mighty change of mind and heart. But which we we would agree repentance is a change of mind in the right direction, right? But but where do you find what you need to change in your mind? Yeah, um, is kind of the question that's you know lying underneath all that, right? And so true repentance would be changing your mind to believe what is true versus yeah. what is false, and so they're trying to show you how to find what's true but they're basically doing it with these sort of fear tactics, right? Yeah. Of like, we define know, it. That's we right. It. We tell you yeah. what is true and, you know, stop, stop looking for other stuff. Right. Yeah. And this connects um, to another section. And then there's a Neil Maxwell quote that's aimed at 
particularly me, for having left it. Yeah. But listen to this. This is same week. Some students may initially think that they have never done anything that pleased Heavenly Father. It may help to ask them to carefully ponder these questions and pay attention to their thoughts and feelings. Now, they include thoughts there for the first time. Yeah. Uh, but listen to this. Thoughts and feelings. And then this is the next sentence. Identifying times when they felt love, joy, peace, or goodness, feelings that come from the Holy Ghost, could help students see times that Heavenly Father was happy with their actions. And then it cites Galatians 5.22. Mm-hmm. So there is this connection between what's comfortable and feels good with Heavenly Father is pleased with you. And there's a connection between what's true and what these leaders will approve of. Yep. Based on what you're comfortable with. And I mean, this needs to be said. We are comfortable with what we were around, what we were exposed to. That's not a good temperature for truth. That's yep. not a good thermometer for truth, I mean to say. That's right. And, you know, just being, there are people who are uncomfortable with good things. There are people who are comfortable with good things. There are people who are uncomfortable with bad things. There are people who are comfortable with bad things. And I think this is just key to say because this this is using fear to get people to not listen, for example, to our podcast. Not mm-hmm. that we're necessarily the greatest right. source on every issue. Yeah. Yeah. But it's 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 just saying this is something that they're hearing and is there to scare them away from considering what the scriptures actually teach. Because anytime it talks about it, it's you know, it says the scriptures and what they teach and this and this. And honestly, I it is a very emotional religion. We've talked about this. Yeah. But I want to point out a couple things that kind of disturb me about this. And I see it often when people leave. It is a painful experience leaving. Is I, for as emotional as they are, I don't even think they get that right. You know? And you can see it in how they talk about contention. Right? Um, as if there's never a time to be angry and for it to be right. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like they neuter half the emotional spectrum. Say these ones are, if you feel a certain way, our Heavenly Father's happy with you. As if, by the way, there aren't people, true crime listeners, are there people who are comfortable doing incredibly atrocious things? Yeah. But they were comfortable. They felt comfortable with it. Yeah. Does that mean it's good? Yeah. Does that mean it's Heavenly Father's pleased with them? I mean, we are a horrible way to measure what's yeah. true, what's good. And so they prioritize some feelings over others. And so if I say something that makes them feel contentious, they think, well, right, that must mean it's not true. But maybe the truth is uncomfortable. I mean, it, a lot of people see that, you know, thoughts, feelings, behavior, they're connected, right? But they... You know, if if all you're prioritizing is feelings, it leads you to a point where you are unable to grapple with uncomfortable truths that might be stated in the Bible, right? Yeah. Because they're not, it's uncomfortable, it's weird, therefore it must not be true. Because obviously, if they're comfortable with it, if it feels good, then it, that, that must be clearly what's true. I just want to <clears throat> piggybacking off of that. Um, and all this relates to repentance, but repentance requires a standard of truth. 
Yeah. Um, otherwise, how do you know what you're supposed to repent of? You know, and if the standard of truth is just the way that you feel, um, that's not a good standard. And we do when we want to repent. We want to correct our thoughts. We want our thoughts to be aligned with what is true. Um, but, yeah, I mean, how do you know what is true? Um, and, of course, from a credo Christian perspective, we believe that the, the Word of God consistently, the Bible, the 66 books, consistently are trying to point the people of God back to the truth. And it's saying, this is the truth. The, the scriptures right here are the truth. And so you repent when you align yourself according to the truth of the Bible. You know, when you turn away from whatever false belief or false religion or, you know, unethical behavior according to the standard of scripture, when it, whenever you turn away from that to embrace the truth of God, that is turning to embrace Christ himself, who is, you know, the word made flesh. But I just want to talk real quick because we, we just went through Ezra chapter 9 in our church this week, and I think this would be a good example of what biblical repentance looks like um, in comparison to perhaps what we see on the whole presented in curriculum like this. But I want to start by just saying Ezra, um, of course, is a man, and I believe Ezra is the one who wrote you know, much of the book of Ezra, but uh, he, was a, he was a scribe, and listen to how he is described um, in this book. Uh, it says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach its statutes and its rules in Israel. Um, and then even up in verse 6, it says, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord the God of Israel had given the king granted him all that he asked. But the point that's being made is Ezra is a man who's grounded in the truth of the word of God. He's skilled in the law of the Lord. He studies the law. He does the law. He teaches the law. His whole world is centered around the truth of God as it is revealed in the scriptures. And Ezra goes on this journey with these uh, returned exiles, which would have been the second wave of exiles returning from Babylonia into the land of Canaan. The first wave of exiles would have gone back about 80 years before under the rule of Cyrus the Great. And so there had been Jews living in the land for 80 years before Ezra shows up with the second wave. And when Ezra shows up with the second wave, it says in chapter 9 of Ezra, it says, after these things have been done, the officials approached me and said, this is Ezra personally recounting, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites, that's talking about those who were already in the land who came back 80 years before, these people have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and their sons so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land and this faithlessness uh, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. We don't have time to break down this passage in all of its detail. Uh, if you want to go check it out, the sermon's online at um, the fbcprovo.org website. But basically what's happen happening here is Ezra knows the law of the Lord. In the law, in places like Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 7, if I remember right, maybe 9, but in both of those places, there is a very strict commandment given by God that Israel is to be a holy and set-apart people. And so because, you know, and, and that means they're not to mix with the unholy people of the land. Now, what's meant by that is not you can never marry someone who's a non-Jew because we have a pure bloodline and we're racist. That's not the point at all. Moses, who wrote the law, 
This is something I talk about in the sermon briefly, but Moses, who wrote the law, had a non-Jewish wife. And so the problem wasn't with marrying these uh, these non-Jewish women. The problem was with marrying women who were idol worshipers, who worshipped a different God, who didn't worship Yahweh. And if you marry them, the wisdom is that your heart will be drawn away from the worship of the one true Yahweh because you're going to start running after these false idols, you know, and uh, and so Ezra, I just listen to his response when he hears this is going on in the land, and he realizes God's people are not living holy and under the Lord the way that they're supposed to. It says, Ezra says, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat appalled. And that that word appalled there means he's dumbfounded, he's baffled, he is. He is, he is feeling the deepest sort of confusion and frustration and anger and all these things at the same time because he's realizing God's people are violating the covenant agreement that they had with their God already. You know, he's like, well, I just showed up. And, uh, and these people have already been only 80 years in. You know, they're already going right back to the sinful idolatry that they had been committed before. And then the rest of chapter 9 is this long prayer, you know, where Ezra is weeping to the Lord. All these other people start gathering around him, and they're weeping before the Lord. They're broken. They're appalled. They're they're expressing their their um, repentance in the deepest possible way. It's not a happy scene. Like yeah. it's about as depressing of a scene as you could imagine. Yeah. Um, they are sobered before a holy God. They realize we are sinning against this perfectly righteous God of ours already. And uh, and so the prayer is really beautiful, and we won't read it. I encourage you to go read it yourself. But then chapter 10 is all seeing what true repentance looks like. The people turn away from their idolatry, and they embrace Yahweh once again. And they make hard decisions to turn away from their sin and to embrace Yahweh in faith. You know, that his covenant promises are true and that his covenant promises are better than clinging to any sort of sinful behavior that they are committing. Like, it's basically, it's very clear, Yahweh's better than the world. Yahweh's better than what I want. I'm going to trust in his covenant promises. And of course, his covenant promises ultimately lead in, in the culmination of all things to the new covenant, which is the coming of Jesus who comes to... Uh, to make a way for us to be restored perfectly in relationship with our God one day. But uh, yeah, it's just this beautiful picture of what repentance looks like, and it's not this happy, you know, feel good, do what feels good sort of thing. It's being put on the floor quite literally with your face rubbed into the dirt because you realize how unworthy you are before a holy God. And the only thing you can do is say, I've got to trust that in your covenant promises you're going to show me grace. Um, I got to trust that you're going to provide deliverance for me because I can't do it for myself. So, anyways, not much more to say yes. there unless you got anything you want to tack on. But there's so many biblical passages that really deal with the full-hearted repentance being rooted in the fact of what God has revealed about Himself, the fact of what He has revealed about us, us recognizing the real difference. How fall how far we fall short in leaning wholly upon his grace and mercy. That's right. And that is completely absent in this talk about repentance, with all the superficial similarities. Really, you're leaning upon the priesthood authority of the church. Yep. 
to define all of those things for you through whatever revelation. And really, it's a program, like a workout plan of perfection. Yep. And um, it it's, I just wish, um, I hope the fear factor of this lesson, which is frankly pretty disturbing, even the object lesson that they have in there. Yeah. They, they have this... Um, they have an object list. Let me just read this. Consider displaying the phrase truth from God on one side of the room and lies from Satan on the other side of the room. So kids are doing this. Invite students to imagine that every source of information on earth, including divinely appointed sources, as well as other sources, such as books, social media posts, opinions, research, news articles, and so forth, is represented by the gap between these two phrases. And, um, which sources of truth should be placed closer to the truth from God and then which closer to the lies from Satan. And this is right underneath a quote from Neil Maxwell saying, some insist upon studying the church only through the eyes of its defectors, like interviewing Judas to understand Jesus. Defectors always tell us more about themselves than about that from which they have departed. Well, I hope over the course of this podcast that we show that that's not true, and that comfort is not the test for truth. And that when you feel that separation from God, that actually might be from God. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, because you need a Savior. Mm. Like, you can't do it. It doesn't mean you give up and never try. And I mean, we once again, it doesn't matter how many times we put... Sanctification's real, but apart from justification, you don't have it anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and it's only a workout plan apart from God that yeah. will last only in this life. So I just hope that people feel comfortable approaching God with all the emotions. There's a right time to be angry. There's a wrong time to be angry. Yep. There's a right time to feel peace. There's a wrong time to feel peace. Yep, that's right. Because if you're not actually at peace with God, you shouldn't feel that way. That's right. And that distinction is obliterated. And then this fear keeps so many people thinking it's only the church and that's it. And then unfortunately, if they ever do question that, they leave into nothing. Yeah. Or new age and think, you know, somehow yoga can, you know, fill that void. Well, yoga can't pay for your sins either. So once again, it's a funny, they go back to what they're used to, which is some sort of therapeutic plan by which they can feel a certain way. Yep. Rather than owning the distinction between God and men and recognizing the Savior God has provided in and as the man Jesus, that the mysterious God of Sinai was revealed in his son in and as his son on the cross. Yep, that's good. Well, I know we promised people for a quick talk on baptism. Yes. I, we're, we're, I, I, we probably need to start wrapping it up because we're pretty deep into this already. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, I, I know that the details of baptism will probably come up again. Um, I think we've actually hit on some of the most foundational aspects of this lesson because baptism is kind of presented as just one of these acts of repentance that you do, um, or one of these, I guess, works that you do that accord with, with this repentance and these, this plan of, you know, the covenant plan of salvation or whatever, you know, covenant that, path, the covenant path. There it is yeah. that, uh, that you walk along and baptism is one of those rites that you pass through. Um, I do. I mean, we need to talk about baptism eventually. 
Um, I just can't see how it won't come up again because as we walk through the New Testament, there's so many other passages that refer to baptism. So um, I'm okay. sure we'll get there again. But, you know, maybe one of the things that we could talk about is uh, just briefly, in spite of all the differences that even a Baptist and a Presbyterian would have, the thing that we agree on is the most important you know, truth regarding our understanding of baptism, which is that baptism is not a work that you do that adds to your salvation. It's not a work that you do that justifies you or makes you more righteous in God's sight. Uh, baptism is really a, a, a representation of what Christ has done um, in our place. And, uh, and, you know, however we parse those things out, which there are differences, and there's differences that we would, you know, debate within the two traditions, the Baptist and Presbyterian tradition, on either of those, those debates don't cause us to, you know, tear apart from one another and say, you're not a Christian, or, you know, I'm not a Christian Correct. in either direction. Absolutely. And, uh, and that's because a lot of the things we're going at in the heart of, you know, Mormonism um, hopefully in a loving and gracious way, are those things that would separate us on a fundamental level, um, you know, and make us say, this is a Christian teaching and this is not a Christian teaching. Um, and so, you know, I'm just going to make some of those general comments and then looks like you got something else you want to Yes, I'll try cover. to outline just a few things yeah. going along with what you said. Sure. A lot of their argument um, about baptism actually rests on their denial of original sin. So even if, you know... You and the LDS Church agree on immersion as the method, the mode, the mode yep. yes. Of course, you do it in the name of the triune God, right. as do Presbyterians, and they do it in the name of three different gods. Yep. Okay, so the most important, I think, similarity, in my opinion, is the Trinity. Yep. Um, and then you don't deny <laughs> original sin, right. that has to be said, whereas they do, you know, for them... You know, this is Joseph F. Smith. Little children are taken away in infancy, are not capable of committing sin, and Satan has no power over them. For them, it, I do want to point out just some of the irony, right? They want to say, if you read uh, Moroni 8, you'll see what uh, Joseph Smith, putting it in the mouth of a white Native American that didn't historically exist, um, <laughs> thinks of Presbyterians yeah. about infant baptism. And, you know, it's we're in the gall of bitterness and, and iniquity and whatever. Well, interestingly enough, in the DNC, John the Baptist, who's in this chapter, was baptized as a little kid. Yeah. Also, if the whole point is that, and they do have this view that baptism uh, is removes all sin before the actual baptism, they say, but they also have this age of accountability view. So you baptize an eight-year-old, which apparently isn't a little kid um, for them, uh, who has not been able to commit sin, but they emphasize, on the other hand, that one of its primary functions is to wash away sin. Right. So there's this huge tension, yeah, yeah uh, in in their view, um, and the uh, the verse that they cite in the Bible to defend some of this stuff is um, Romans four fifteen. I just want to say that that is not our view of that verse. We do not think that the New Testament teaches there's no sin if they don't know the, the law. Mm -hmm. uh, and in fact, I, it's a, pretty incredible that even Mormon scholars will get this 
wrong about yeah. the New Testament teaching with Paul. His whole point is that there's you even you look in there's yeah. law. Yeah, there's not you know. whether you're a Jew who is born under the law or a Gentile yeah. who is not born under the Mosaic law, you're still a sinner. all alike everyone condemned. Is, yeah, everyone yes. is sinful. So so that's that's key to see that they they really reject any federal headship in Christ. And by the way, that is a consistency they have because if you reject that, it makes sense that they would have no concept of the federal headship of Jesus. And that's why it's just, he's an example, he's an example, he's an example, rather than the object of faith. And that there is a connection between his, you know, baptism and and our salvation, right, um, directly. So that uh, one uh, quick thing too, we can do a bonus episode on this. The Whether you listen to the conservative interpreter or engaging uh, gospel doctrine. They both have this kind of view, even in this um, Charles Harrell Development of Mormon Theology book. They claim that Jesus was adopted, right? Uh, it was the man Jesus was adopted as son of God at the baptism. Um, it is a typical view popularized by Bart Ehrman that this was the earliest Christology. Of course, we would absolutely reject that. Yeah. We do see something starting at the baptism as the beginning of his messianic mission. But no, this is the same word that was made flesh, right? We have a very much a, a Christology of descent for us. Um, and if you look at, you know, even the early epistles of Paul, you see that already right there, Jesus is fully God. Though truly man, he's also truly God. And therefore, we do not see it as... Um, as someone on the interpreter said, that somehow he didn't know who he was. He had he didn't have the fullness of first, and they cite DNC ninety three yeah. until the baptism, right? Yep. Um, that's not our view at all. Yep. So it doesn't mean there wasn't a beginning in time in the historia salutis uh, at the baptism. Yeah. But, and I, I don't know how yeah. I don't know how Luke two would be dealt with in that understanding either, where right. Jesus is you know not on the caravan with his parents and they freak out and they go and find him in his temple. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's just a kid. Right. And they're like, what, what are you doing? He's like, <laughs> didn't you know I'd be at my father's house? Yeah. I mean, clearly from a young age, you know, Jesus knew, he knew, he knew absolutely. He, he knew who he was. <laughs> and, and just contrary to popular belief, adoptionist Christology just factually wasn't uh, the earliest. Um, even in, the 100s, 200s, we actually first see an adoptionism that's developed as the mere man, you know, becoming the son of God in a Roman context, maybe 190 to 200 AD is the first time. And it was a minority view even within that community. So yeah. that's a that's pretty different than claiming Mark just has a human Jesus and oh, totally yeah. develops into the logos of John. Yep. <laughs> just look at Mark 2. Uh, only God forgives sins. Mm-hmm. Who's forgiving sins? The sins of the paralytic. Yeah. So this is, uh, th- these are just some odds and ends. Yeah. That I wanted good. to throw out that's there. That's good. Well, it looks like uh, next week we'll be, um, I'm excited about this one, John 2 to 4. And the title of it is, Ye Must Be Born Again. So we'll see what's meant by that. And uh, I'm excited about it. Join us then, and we'll see you next time.